Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it gives me great pleasure to welcome the pioneer of calling into question the impact of technology and the resulting new business models in society. He has been called a Luddite and a technological antichrist for calling out such concerns. Today, no one calls him that anymore. He is author of the fantastic books, The Cult of the Amateur, Digital Vertigo, The Internet is Not the Answer, and the focus of today's chat, How to Fix the Future. Welcome, Andrew Keane. Thank you, Aidan. It's great to have you on the show, Andrew. It really is. I've just finished your fabulous book. It's just launched in the UK and Europe. It's been out since February in the US. What I love about this book is you don't just go one way or the other. It's not dystopian or utopian. And it reminds me of, do you look at it last and see it half full or half empty? Or do you talk about the benefits of ice? And that's what you do in here. You look at the world through a what we can do about it lens. Well, thank you. Yeah. The problem is, is that, as you suggested, we tend to either fall in or out of love with technologies. Over the last 20 years, we've had a love affair with technology, which now seems to have soured. And many of us have now started blaming technology for everything. It's just as short-sighted to see technology as the solution for everything as being the problem with everything. So hopefully I, I don't fall into either of those categories. I have in my career, I think I've sometimes been slightly unfair on technology, but you talked about the four books I've written. Over the narrative of those four books, I think I've become fairer and more realistic about technology. It'd be great, Andrew, if you would give us a bit of a background on how you got here, because you've been an entrepreneur, you've used technology, you've used different business models in your own career, but also the story of this book and how you got to where we are. Well, I like so many people out here in Silicon Valley, I've kind of failed up. The more things I failed at, the better I seem to do. So um, started my life as an internet entrepreneur. I founded a company called Audio Cafe in the mid-90s, an internet company, a, a bit of a kind of me-too company. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we raised some money like a lot of people did in the mid-90s. So it was very exciting. It was a remarkable experience, actually. Uh, still one of the most memorable experiences of my life. Uh, and then I did a lot of business development and sales jobs. I was involved in different kinds of startups, software companies, 3D technologies, all sorts of things, real-time video, always slightly too early, but always interesting. And then in about 2005, 2006, as the Web 2.0 hysteria grew, I realized that there were some big problems with it. I felt that the Web 2.0 focus on disintermediation and undermining the authority and credibility of traditional media was unwise. So I wrote a book called Cult of the Amateur in 2007, which was extremely controversial. When I was writing it, I didn't quite realize how controversial it would be. Uh, it touched a nerve in the Web 2.0 movement, made me into a kind of outcast out here. A lot of people accuse me of being a reactionary and a Luddite, which I've never been. Today, of course, what I was arguing in Cult of the Amateur, that we need curators, we need gatekeepers, and if you allow anyone to post anything, you have a kind of cultural chaos, and it also enables cheats and fake news. Uh, it's being said by everyone. So in a way, um, Cult of the Amateur predicted what would happen with the internet. I wrote a book then called Digital Vertigo, which 
presented social media as being antisocial, again, a little bit ahead of its time. And then in, 20, uh, in, in, in 2015, um, I wrote The Internet's Not the Answer, which argued that instead of more democracy and more economic equality, what the internet was creating as a winner-take-all economy of a tiny group of increasingly monopolistic companies. So that's what got me to how to fix the future. More and more people have actually come around to the arguments I was making in Cult of the Amateur and the internet's not the answer and digital vertigo about the problems with social media, the winner-take-all nature of the economy, the failure of Web 2.0 to really create a reliable civic culture. Having done all that, I, I figured that I needed to write an answers book. Uh, we increasingly agree on many of the problems of the digital revolution. So now today, what we've got to do is figure out how to fix it, because uh, that's the most immediate and important thing to focus on. You've done this so well, where so many people look at it through a futurist lens, but you've actually looked and given us confidence, humanity confidence to go, look, We've been through such massive change before and we've survived it and we've gone through the bad sides of that change. It'd be great to talk about that a little bit because you look to the past to fix the future. Right, so I bring a, a historical lens to this. Again, I'm not, certainly not the first or the last person to do this, but I remind people, particularly in Silicon Valley, who don't tend to look at the past, who always think they're doing something completely new and it's never been done in the past. I remind people that the kind of disruption and chaos that we're facing today of inequality and the imminence of massive technological unemployment, cultural chaos, even the business model of surveillance capitalism, that these have been problems before. So I look back at the Industrial Revolution, I look back at the Reformation and the Renaissance and find moments in history where we as a species have been faced with dramatic, disorienting disruption and have figured stuff out. So my argument in how to fix the future is we've done it before and we can do it again. Being human, particularly in the face of artificial intelligence, means shaping our future. I even come up with a law for that. We all know Gordon Moore's law, the law that drives the digital revolution, that computer chips double every, empower every 18 months. I come up with my own Moore's law, but this one based on Thomas More, M-O-R-E, the author, 16th century English author of Utopia, uh, a book which actually is extremely realistic rather than utopian. Uh, in this book, Moore argues that our species being, if you like, our definition of what it means to be human is shaping our future, taking responsibility. So Moore's law for me, M-O-R-E, uh, Moore's law is the thing driving the book and should drive us as a species as we figure out our role in the digital 21st century where smart machines are in some ways replacing much of what we've done, particularly in the workplace. When you spotted that book, when you came across the Thomas Bohr book, the Utopia book, and you talk about this being a map and the Moore's map, and it was like serendipity because it kind of gave you a framework in which you based the book. Well, that's really nice of you. Yeah, the the thing about the book that I like, mo I like most is the chapter, the Moore's Laws chapter, and the suggestion that our challenge today is figuring out a map into the future, and that map needs to be premised on our experience in the past. Of course, mapping technology now is all the rage. We use it on our smartphones. We can't get around without the use of maps. We're in a 
some ways addicted to our maps. But as I suggest, uh, there are other kinds of maps too, slightly less quantitative, slightly less digital, but nonetheless, in some ways, even more valuable. So, so yeah, the, the kind of the metaphor of the map is the, again, the central thing, giving direction, coherence to the narrative of my book. And I don't want to, I don't want your listeners to think that this is too complicated or pretentious a book. Hopefully it's fairly easy to read. There's nothing very... Absolutely. To your credit as well, you mean, you come up with five tenets, essentially, ways that we can navigate the future. And it'd be great to talk about them, Andrew, because some of them didn't dawn on me before. You know, and I'd be pretty au fait with this space. And I had never given credit, for example, to the role of regulation. You draw examples from the food industry, and indeed, one which was really interesting was the evolution of the car industry and the introduction yeah. of regulation there. I argue in the book that we, have, we as humans have always had five tools to fix the future, five ways of dealing with dramatic technological disruption. The first, as you say, is regulation, which is essential, though in the US people are always wary of it, and every time I mention regulation, people think I'm a communist or a socialist, which is absurd, but regulation is essential, whether it's the regulation of the industrial age, which guaranteed that 11-year-old children didn't work in factories, or that there was a social security system or social insurance system for unlucky workers who happened to find themselves without jobs, Regulation is important. We're already seeing it today with regulation around antitrust and data protection, especially in Europe. But it's not just regulation. We also need innovation. I think at the moment, the digital economy has kind of run out of innovation. We've fallen on a tried and trusted, and I think in a way, a, a failed business model of surveillance capitalism. We need new business models for our digital companies. Uh, innovation and regulation, but also consumer power. Consumers define the future in many ways by demanding better products. You brought up the food industry. Today, we have whole foods and high-quality foods and farmers markets and good-quality restaurants because that's what consumers are willing to pay for. And in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the food on sale was addictive and poisonous and expensive. So consumers are very important. And then, of course, we have the idea of citizenship, of citizen engagement, of citizens demanding a better future. Fifth, and finally, last but certainly not least, is education. So it's those five things, innovation, regulation, consumer power, consumer actually and worker power, citizen engagement and education, which are key. And in the book, I have a, a chapter on each. These are broad categories. Many of the people fixing the future are both innovators and indeed regulators. In, in, in Brussels, for example, I meet Margaret Vestager, EU Commissioner of Antitrust, and her regulation, I think, has been designed to benefit the innovation economy, particularly in the West Coast, in Silicon Valley. People always associate regulation with absence, with being against innovation. But I think smart, responsible regulation is for innovation. And a completely unregulated market ultimately results in monopolies, which in turn undermine innovation. You talk about some of the history, again, where we've seen large monopolies broken up. And I've been guilty of this, where I've thought of regulation as, boo, the regulators coming in and spoiling everybody's party. Then again, I've seen the likes of Margaret Vestager 
in a brand new massive respect for people like that because they are going out on the limb they're not being the cool kids but they're absolutely essential for all of our futures right i mean look Margaret Vestager in Brussels, and I, in one of the chapters, um, I described my meetings with her. She's a remarkable woman, very warm, very able, very brave, more than any other single individual, not only in Europe, but in the world. She's standing up to Silicon Valley. When Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, came to Europe, came to, to meet with Vestager to discuss Apple's failure to essentially pay any tax in Europe, he had such a tough meeting with Vestager that uh, after he came out, he said it was the worst meeting of his life, meaning it was the meeting where he, he controlled the least and had to actually compromise. And it actually, in the end, resulted in Apple having to pay a massive fine because it wasn't paying its taxes. Vestager is the only woman to really stand up to, to Google and Facebook. Google has a monopoly. She has three different antitrust cases going. Same in terms of Facebook and Facebook's irresponsibility in terms of being unwilling to, to be accountable for the kind of garbage and lies and corrosive content that finds its way into its platform. So Vestager, in my view, is heroic. Um, she's not a reactionary. She's not against innovation. In fact, if anything, as she explains, she's standing up for European innovators. Um, it doesn't mean all innovation is good, but it does mean that innovation, uh, that all regulation is good, but it does mean that regulation is essential, ultimately, and it's interesting, in the U.S. now, there's more and more antitrust talk, more and more talk about the need for data regulation, like the general data protection regulation that's just been um, initiated in Europe. There's this kind of cliche that Europe trails behind America when it comes to innovation, which, of course, in some ways is true. But in another way, actually, America trails behind Europe. It's also, when, you, when you're talking history, it's important to remind ourselves of the recent past. In the 90s, I mean, we had a dominant company, Microsoft, of course, that crushed innovation. In the 90s, Microsoft wanted to essentially turn the internet into an extended version of Microsoft itself. And had there not been an antitrust investigation of Microsoft, which again was initiated in Europe, we never would have had the explosion of innovation of Web 2.0. So. This tendency towards a winner-take-all economy is, for better or worse, the most salient feature of our digital economy and our technological economy. And for us to protect future generations of innovators, we need brave regulators willing to stand up to these private superpowers like Vestager. And you give the example as well of another man you met, which was Gary Reback, again, who took on Microsoft, but also Teddy Roosevelt, because I think the richness you add by bringing the past in gives us the confidence to go, look, we've been through this before. It's not new. It's actually been done before. What I love what you did is it's not you versus technology. It's us, a human race versus business models that are based on data cages. You're right, although I think it's also worth adding the caveat that um, history never repeats itself identically. So it, it gives us a framework, a map, if you like. But today's digital revolution brings new issues, new problems, new challenges, and new opportunities. But the overall pattern, the map, is similar. So as you say, in the late 19th century, we had very rich, very powerful companies very irresponsible robber baron capitalists in the period between about 1880 and 1920 or 1930, 
Firstly, we had in the U.S. in particular an antitrust regulation against these large oil and railroad monopolists. But secondly, we had a shift in the consciousness of the wealthy. So you had someone like Andrew Carnegie, who began life as a very cutthroat businessman who was essentially running a steel monopoly, and then spent the second half of his life reinvesting his enormous wealth, some of it which was probably derived from immoral means, in American society, particularly through buying libraries, which still exist in America. That's a model for the Jeff Bezoses and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, who have, for better or worse, benefited enormously, unimaginably, from the digital revolution. I think Bezos is not only the wealthiest man in the world, depending, of course, on what Amazon stock price happens to be on a certain day, but perhaps the, the wealthiest man in human history. And he knows he has to give something back. So I'm hopeful that people like Bezos will turn into the 21st century versions of Andrew Carnegie. Hey, man, Andrew, you give other heroes, for example, you look at exemplars of government and you travel to Estonia and Jan Tallinn, for example. It'd be great to tell our audience a little bit about that journey. The Estonian chapter, which I call Utopia, because in some ways it is like Utopia in its promise and its ambitiousness. Estonia are really leading the charge into a digital society. I spent a chapter there. I actually visited three times. I met the president. I met Jan Tallinn, who's Estonia's most distinguished entrepreneur, the um, co-founder of Skype, which we're talking on, and a number of other important tech companies. What Estonia is trying to do is re-architect a kind of a new digital contract between citizen and state based on a, a kind of a, a, what I call a mutual transparency. It's an interesting model that may offer a map for democracy in the age of big data, where it's harder and harder to protect our privacy, where accountability and transparency are essential if we're to maintain our rights. So the Estonian chapter, I, I think, is also an extremely important one. And it goes side by side with a chapter on Singapore. Singapore is in some ways, the kind of uh, Southeast Asian version of Estonia, very innovative, very ambitious in their Smart Nation initiative. The difference, though, between, I think, Singapore and Estonia is, whereas Estonia is a genuine democracy, the politics of Sim Singapore are slightly more controversial. So I'm a little bit more ambivalent about the, Estonia, about the Singapore model, although I think it does offer, again, a map for countries trying to reinvent themselves in the digital age. And Estonia is indeed inspiring other countries around Europe. Even in the US, I met recently with the governor, a woman called Gina Raimondo, a very talented female governor of Rhode Island, a Rhodes Scholar, former VC, lawyer, brilliant woman, maybe one day she'll be the US president, who told me that her local reforms in Rhode Island and making it a kind of digital city-state were inspired by Estonia. So Estonia is one of the interesting models for new digital society. And my book is, as you say, it's not utopian, it's not theoretical. I didn't sit in a room and imagine how digital society could be perfect, which is, I think, one of the problems with the way in which many futurists think about the world. I actually went out in the world and all the solutions and fixes and challenges are real ones that I describe in the book. I traveled to 
Estonia and Singapore and India and Russia and Germany, the UK, east and west coast of the United States. So hopefully the book is realistic. It's the opposite of utopia. Do you know what it reminded me of, Andrew? It was like an, a book that I hold in really high regard as Jim Collins, Good to Great, that he used empirical data to go out and find these companies that were succeeding so well. And you've done the same with this world, with the world of change, with the world of technology, of new business models, data, etc. But it'd be great to focus in on Estonia a little bit because the way I saw Estonia was, it's almost like, you know, the way you get a big corporate visiting an innovative startup and they kind of go in there yeah. to see an incubator. And that's how it felt. It was like this country who was building their model on trust. And I think this is a really important bit for the book. And I think governments should have this book in their library for everybody working in government because it gives the example of what government should be like. Yeah, well, I think you put your finger on it in terms of trust. We were promised by a lot of these kind of utopian futurists that the future would be defined by abundancy. Peter Diamandis, interesting, smart guy, but he promises in his book, Abundance, the digital world will be a cornucopia of things. There'll be no shortages of anything, which is, of course, profoundly wrong and ahistorical because whenever you have an abundance of something, whether it's information or data, then you have new scarcities. And the real scarcity, there are two, I think, critical scarcities of our information age. The first is attention. We have too much data, too much data in terms of our ability to actually consume it and make sense of it, which accounts for the fact that many of us feel confused and unsure of how the world works, disempowered. And secondly, we have a scarcity of trust. My friend Richard Edelman of the PR agency Edelman comes out annually with a trust barometer. And every year that trust goes down. We don't trust anyone. We don't trust government. We don't trust other institutions. We don't trust media. We barely trust ourselves anymore. Much of it's understandable because of the way in which Putin's trolls, for example, have turned the internet into a kind of a cesspool of lies and, 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 and corrosive content. Estonia is different. In Est Estonia and indeed Singapore have quite high levels of trust. And that's, as, as I suggested, because the government is trying to shape a new kind of arrangement with the citizen where it acknowledges in, in, in a digital republic, which is what Estonia is, a sort of a pioneer of a digital republic, uh, it will have access to the citizen's data, health data, transportation data, education data, increasingly financial and tax data. Everything will be done online. So they can look at us in everything we do. They're, they're the kind of public Google or Facebook. But what the Estonians are doing is shaping a social contract where they also are transparent and accountable, that they can't just look at our data without us knowing. So if they choose to look at our data for one reason or other, they have to tell us. Now, this model is the most positive model. The negative model, of course, is being pioneered in China where China is amassing huge amounts of data about all its citizens through incredibly sophisticated technology, facial recognition technology, social media data, and yet they are in no way accountable. No one has any idea of how the Chinese government's using our data. They're creating a kind of digital big brother state, whereas the Estonian model, I think, is the really positive one. And again, Andrew, it goes back to what you've done in this book. You've painted the dystopian 
which is China, for example, or Russia. And then Estonia is the utopia. And then Singapore is the maybe. And it's having those options, I think, as exemplars for other governments. It's, it's like you talk about in the book, the meat industry in the US was cleaned up. And that cleaned it up for the world. It just so happens that it's been done elsewhere in the world. And America can take the lead from example, people like Vestager, for example, GDPR, which is a huge deal across Europe at the moment, is leading the way for America to follow suit. Right. So the, the always the assumption in Silicon Valley is, of course, that everything begins in Silicon Valley and it starts in California, it starts in Palo Alto, extends out to California, then the East Coast, then the rest of the world. And when it comes to these major political reforms, regulatory reforms, new kinds of innovation, citizen and consumer initiatives, and indeed education reforms, it's not necessarily starting on the West Coast. So this book is in part written to remind Silicon Valley that it isn't the beginning and the end of everything. It's not necessarily against Silicon Valley. And I do have some examples here, uh, socially responsible venture capitalists, for example, and some other new business initiatives and some of the more accountable uh, billionaires of Silicon Valley who are giving back to society. But not everything starts here. When it, and the world is, as you suggested, it's a complicated place. So even this issue of data is complicated. In Estonia and Singapore, we do, of course, and certainly in, 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 in the West, in the US, in the UK, we fear the way in which the government may look at our data. We fear a new kind of Orwellianism. But actually, when I went to India, I found that the underclass, the problem with the poorest 20% of people in India is that they had no identity at all. No, they had no way of proving who they were when they were, when they were, when they encountered the police or tried to get a job or medical care. So in India, what you have is, a, is an, a, a, a digital ID system being pioneered to give that bottom 20% identity, which is a way of empowering them. So the politics of data is complicated. In some ways, we should fear the government knowing too much about us, having too much of our data. And yet in places like India, um, that data can actually be empowering, liberating, enable us to have civilized lives. So the world is a complicated place. It's not simple. There is no single app to fix the future. And, one sol and a solution in one country may indeed be a problem in another and vice versa. Yeah, and, th and that one raises an interesting one, which is the blockchain, for example. You know, you mentioned Tim Berners-Lee, father of the internet, if you will, and his original vision is this, is what we're seeing in India and places like this, where it's empowering people to be connected in a positive way. And what we're seeing instead is these behemoths ring fencing and creating these walled gardens and collecting all the wealth in one place and denying it elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, Facebook, I think, is the best example of this in India. Facebook came up with what it called a, a free basics platform in which it essentially gave away the internet, access to the internet for free in India. But then when people accessed the internet, it really became just an extension of Facebook. I think in Facebook's version of the internet or fa Facebook's uh, free basics, Google wasn't even available. So the search engine was some sort of extension of Facebook. And what the Indians did is turned around and said, actually, guys, that's illegal. And they passed a network neutrality bill 
a law in India which banned that kind of behavior. So you're absolutely right. A company like Facebook, which promised emancipation and enlightenment and connectivity and community, has actually turned into one of the world's biggest problems. And what happened in India, I think, was a very important reminder that Facebook can't just impose its way, its business model on the rest of the world. And it's also a reminder that companies like Facebook are businesses. They're not public services. However brilliantly they spin their brand and they present themselves as benefiting mankind, the reverse is actually true. Facebook benefits Facebook employees and investors and shareholders, but not necessarily the rest of us. That raises this one. Like, there's this really intense contradiction between our innate curiosity as human beings and exploring technology and pushing it as far as it can, and then corporate greed. And it's that balance that we need to strike. And if we go with the corporate greed one, and as we said, ring-fencing wealth, that could accelerate our demise. And and you talked about Edward Snowden and the events you were at in Germany in the book. And I think this is one of the key elements of the book that you get across and he mentions it, is this loss of sense of agency. And it'd be great if you'd explain that to our audience, Andrew. Right, so the issue of agency, as I, as I think we, we talked at the beginning of, the, of this conversation, the issue of agency is key. What makes us human, and this is what Moore reminds us of in Utopia, this is the thing defining Moore's law, is that our ability to make and remake our society, to impose ourselves, on forces like technology, which to some of us feels beyond our control, is what defines us as human beings. At the moment, many of us feel we've lost agency in the face of smart machines, in the, in the face of multi-billion, maybe trillion dollar companies like Facebook and Apple and Google, in the face of surveillance capitalism, where we feel we're being watched all the time, in the face of fake news and corrosiveness, where we can't trust anything we read or see online, we need to re-establish our agency. Perhaps the most brilliant figure in the whole history of computing is a woman called Ada Lovelace, 19th century uh, business partner of Charles Babbage, the guy who is famously uh, described as the father of the modern computer. He was the one who invented the analog computer. But Lovelace, in many ways, is actually much more of a, an important figure. She was the one who invented the idea of software. She was Lord Byron's daughter, a self-made, self-taught mathematician, never went to university, but so brilliant that she invented the very idea of software. And in inventing it, she reminded everyone, and this is in the middle of the 19th century, that software can't think for itself. Software doesn't have agency. Software doesn't have goals. And that's the thing that we need to remember most of all in the, the, the uh, 21st century, where we've invented smart machines, smart algorithms, which can replicate much of what we can do. But our special skill, our secret source, is agency, is having goals, is being creative, is having these kinds kinds of conversations, is having empathy, having all those human qualities which, con which computers and algorithms can't replicate. So agency, having agency, not only enables us to fix the future and shape a world that we want to in our children to inherit, but it also carves out our place 
in the digital 21st century. And if we just give up and, 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 and allow these machines and these large technological companies and monopolies to take over, then, then we lose on both fronts. So agency is the key. It's the, it's the core message. It's Moore's law running through the book. You mentioned this throughout the book as well, that technology doesn't solve technological problems. People do. But also the killer line, which you mentioned, Joy Ito, MIT Media Lab says, which is everything is moving except us. And when that happens, you get this social, cultural, economic whiplash. And that's what it feels like. It feels like machines and these big tech behemoths are advancing, but the rest of the world is trying to catch up or else is just standing still. Right. And you know, you can't regulate that, or you might try and regulate it by banning technology or these companies, which is, is certainly not really, I think, a wise solution. So we need to catch up. It's up to us. You and I and your listeners, uh, we wear many hats. Some of us work in government. Some of us are entrepreneurs. Many of us are parents. We're all children of, of, of somebody or other. We're teachers. We're university professors. We're consumers. We all can do something. Sometimes people say, well, what can I do? I'm just X. I, I don't really have power. That's the wrong way of thinking about it. So my book is a kind of manifesto of empowerment. It's suggesting that everyone could do something. I have examples of lawyers, for example, who are standing up to the new sharing companies by demanding that Uber obeys the law and, and, and make sure that, that they give something back to their drivers. I have a section on musicians who are standing up to Spotify and demanding that Spotify compensates musicians fairly. Um, uh, I have uh, a whole section on education. I introduced teachers actively trying to develop what they call the muscle of agency. So we can all do something. When most of us will not end up being Margaret Vestager. Uh, there's only one person who can actually stand up to Tim Cook or Larry Page or Jeff Bezos, but we can all do something. It's not good enough just to look elsewhere. And that, I think, has always been the problem in, in these age of, of great disruption, that this feeling of powerlessness, this feeling that the forces are just too great and there's nothing we can do. We can all do something. You talk about when the world went industrial during the Industrial Revolution and there was people, you know, hitting the gin carts on the streets. I feel that that's happening at the moment, but it's just, it doesn't happen to be just alcohol. It might be drugs. It might be technology. It might be living on social media. It's escapism. It's watching the Kardashians. It's, exactly. It's, and, and that's the real danger. We, we, we do have the danger of slipping into a kind of brave new world. You remember Hux's dystopia where most people were, were spaced out on opioids, what uh, Huxley called Soma. And as you suggest that those drugs are either in the addiction of social media, which, by the way, is incredibly dangerous and now is increasingly being confronted by software engineers in Silicon Valley, or in the physical reality of opioids, uh, or, or in the many other drugs. But we've dealt with this again before. We dealt with it with food. We know that fast food and physical drinks are in some ways addictive. We know that cigarettes are addicted. We've addictive and we've confronted these things. Now, not always successfully and not always perfectly. There are still many people smoking, but it's happened in the past and it will happen again. When it comes to addictive technology, for example, you have a group of really concerned technologists in Silicon Valley led by a guy called Tristan Harris, 
who used to work for Google. He was what, he, what, what was known as an ethical programmer at Google, which may be a contradiction in terms. He left the company, describing himself now as a whistleblower, and with a guy called Roger McNamee, who was one of the early investors in Facebook, a very well-known local VC that had been so close to Mark Zuckerberg that he actually introduced him to Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the woman who's made the trains run on time in Facebook and who is really the real reason I think the company now is a, you know, a $500 billion company, um, are actually pushing back on Silicon Valley and reminding programmers and developers and entrepreneurs that they have a responsibility to developing ethical technology, technology which isn't addictive. Uh, Harris has even suggested that programmers sign a kind of equivalent of the medical Hippocratic Oath in which they behave in a moral way. It doesn't mean they can't produce, design, develop, sell high-quality, successful products, but those products need to be ethical too. You can sell good stuff, which is also valuable. And I, I think this question of addiction on so many fronts is really key, particularly since more and more of us no longer have a real purpose. As machines replace us in the workforce, as we have things like guaranteed minimum income, which means that we can survive without having to work, we're still going to need to do something with our lives. And that doesn't mean sitting at home on Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram. It means reinventing our lives and being creative and giving something back. So this question of addiction and how we confront addiction, whether it's the addiction of drugs or of technology is really, really important and will become, in my view, one of the key issues of the next 25 years. Regulators have a role to play here. So do innovators and, of course, educators as well. It reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Andrew, where most of us, our basic needs are met. Thankfully, in the developed world, most of us are there. We're looking for meaning in our world. But most people are stuck in fur-lined mousetraps. They are paid so well in meaningless jobs that they hate. But the problem is they don't want to give up the lifestyle and go after a life of meaning. And society makes them feel that that's the only way. And they, they've lost confidence to move roles. And you talk about this where if there was universal basic income, for example, it would almost be some type of safety net so people would jump more. Right. And I go, again, I go back to... Utopia, Moore's famous book in this. Moore invented the idea of universal basic income, an imaginary one in Utopia. And he reminds everyone that the key to this is being creative. It's not just enough not to have to work. You need to do music or read or teach or engage with your fellow citizen in the evening. And that's the key, I think, as you suggested to the, the challenge today. Is in terms of Maslow's hierarchy, we are being, for better or worse, liberated from physical labor. We certainly no longer work in the fields. Now we no longer work in the factories. We have smart machines doing most of our heavy lifting. But that still raises the question of what we are going to do in this new age. When it comes to agency, we have to focus on what we're good at. So maybe we need to be more empathetic. Maybe we need to develop that muscle. We're always going to have smart machines, for example, that will be able to figure out medical problems. But we don't have machines that will be able to sit down with a patient and explain what's wrong with them. The real human element, which can't be replicated in machines, is what we need to focus on in this new age. 
there's a different type of education missing today where we've lost real sense of creativity. As you said, the human skills. The education system is built for the industrial revolution. How do you feel about where we are with education and where we're going next? I agree, absolutely. I have the, the final chapter in the book, and in some ways, the sort of not only the concluding chapter, but the chapter that fits, uh, that, that brings it, all my argument together is about education. As you say, the school system most of us have grown up in doesn't work anymore. It's archaic, it's top down. It's being developed to get us to learn information by heart, stuff that we don't need now, which we can just access on our smartphones, which are essentially supercomputers and will only become more super in the future. What education needs to focus on is the development, uh, the massaging of that muscle of agency. So in the book, I spend some time in, in alternative schools. My daughter goes to a Waldorf school in Northern California. That's an interesting experiment in building agency. The same is true of Montessori schools, um, schools which are working on the building of agency. The two founders of Google, not uh, coincidentally, both attended Montessori schools, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, completely independently. Um, and I also look at universities. Uh, in Singapore, I come across a university which combines engineering with the study of humanities, making sure that the engineers of the future also have an education in the humanities. So all of education needs to be rethought, even the very idea of education, the notion, the sort of the industrial age assumption that we were educated between the ages of five and 23 and then go out in the workplace and do a career, have a job for 40 years is itself uh, out of date. Our parents had one job. You and I have seven jobs. Our kids will have seven jobs simultaneously. And whilst they have those seven jobs simultaneously, they may also be going back to school and re-embracing education. So education needs to be seen increasingly in our network digital age as a lifelong thing, something that the internet can actually empower rather than just going off to school for 20 years and then going out in the workplace. That artificial division between education and work is something that we really need to break down. There's one thing you raise an eyebrow to, which is the investment by a lot of the tech companies in schools. It reminded me a little bit of what you see in sports where kids are identified at a young age as being high potentials and an academy is put together and a foundation is put together so they train in the culture of a certain club. I felt it was a little trickle of that in Facebook's or Google's or any of these big tech companies' investment in schools where they're almost training people to be ready to be employed by those companies down the line because there may be a labor shortage and they're investing in coding, for example. And it really got me thinking that coding is probably the last thing that's needed because that's going to be taught in school. What's not going to be taught is the human skills. I am rather suspicious of somebody like Zuckerberg who's invested huge amounts of money in education. As I warn in the book, he's trying to turn the classroom into just an extended version of Facebook. So I think these new rubber barons of Silicon Valley, they need to be a little bit more accountable and responsible. They have to acknowledge that they shouldn't be pursuing their own interests or the interests of their companies when they give back to society. It needs to be truly altruistic. And there are models for this. You know, Mark Benioff, the 
CEO of Salesforce, a multi-billionaire who is truly giving back education and otherwise to society. Bill Gates as well in his commitment to education and the eradication of disease. I'm not always saying that every Silicon Valley entrepreneur giving back to schools or society should be viewed suspiciously, but, but some should be. And we need to think critically about how these people are using their money. Just as I think we should think critically about the work of people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos in investing huge amounts of money in uh, rockets that will take us to other planets and explore the universe. I guess in a way that's a noble idea, but there are enough problems in this world for these guys to focus on. So I'd rather they forget about life on Mars and focus on making sure that life on Earth is better. Andrew, it would be great to finish on one thing, which is a conversation you mentioned between you and Nicholas Carr, where you raised this extremely important question, which is, in the age of machines and technology, what humans are good for? Right. Well, Nick Carr is a friend of mine and you know, one of the most important critics of digital society. He, uh, he reminded us that our brains seem to have been reshaped by the digital revolution and we're losing uh, our ability to focus on attention. We're forgetting how to read books. Carr, my conversation with Carr, which is, again, one of the concluding conversations in the book, took place in Colorado, where he lives. And for him, again, the issue and remind everything really comes back to Moore's law, that what makes us human is our ability to display agency, to do things slowly, not to be machines. There's too much focus, I think, in the digital world particularly in Silicon Valley, in making us into machines, in focusing on efficiency, in, 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 in taking the smart machine and applying it to the human world. What Carr is reminding us, and what my book reminds us, is that if we are indeed to remain human in the networked age, we need to look at it in an opposite way. We need to focus on what we can do, not what machines can do. Brilliant, Andrew. You talk about the role of education and the importance of leading thinkers in these fields, such as Thomas Friedman, Nick Carr, Stephen Wolfram, Edward Snowden. And you mentioned great books that have educated us over the years. The Great Transformation, Carl Pollyanni, and Utopia by Thomas More. No man's a prophet in his own land. No man is a prophet in his own time. And I feel your work is essentially important to that education. Andrew Keane, author of How to Fix the Future, thank you for joining us. Thank you. A real pleasure and an honor. And I and appreciate your kind remarks about the book. I hope lots of your listeners will have the opportunity to read it too. Thank you. Thank you.